Hey everybody, my name is Alec and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio, Sunday edition. So before we get started, I just wanted to thank everybody who has listened to the podcast lately, especially the episode on Pokemon on Pokemon Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution, which is that new fancy um, CGI Pokemon show that I, a uh, Pokemon movie that um, I think is Netflix original produced. Um, but it was fun to watch the original Pokemon movie again, even if they made a lot of CGI choices. Um, but today I want to talk about something almost on the opposite end, and that is the, what they call, what they call the early Digipaint era of anime. And what that means is when, so... In olden times, before, not before computers necessarily, but before computers were super capable of being used in a production capacity. Um, The way the animation was produced was on cells. And if you've ever seen an animation cell in person, let me be clear, real or fake, these cells are... Um, basically like those old projector sheets you used to see in school if you're uh, are my age, basically. <laughs> um, I, and those projector sheets are like cellophane sheets and they go over the projector and the projector projects the picture on the wall because what is printed on it blocks the light, what's not, doesn't. The cellophane... The, Animation cells are like animation paper, but they are, um, but because, but the way that they used to do it, it, the way they they used to do animation is they used to draw the background on one cell and the character on another. And that was so you could animate the background and the character separately. And the, if you think about it like Photoshop layers, it was... Like the background layer was the background layer in Photoshop, and then the character, the character, and everything else that needed to be animated went on layer one. So it was like layer zero, layer one. Layer zero is the background, and this stuff was all hand painted. If you um, and the reason why I said real or fake um, animation cell is because one of the reasons why you should never buy an animation cell um, just like out on the open market is because it is probably fake. I mean, I saw a, um, and I almost bought it too, just because I thought it was cool, not because I'm like, oh, this is real, I should own this. Uh, I, and, and I saw a cell for a Ghost in the Shell thing when I was at Anime NYC, and uh, they also had cells for, um, FLC, for like FLCL stuff, but I think it was FLCL um, Alternative or Progressive. And the reason why you never buy these things is because they are usually fake because it, it's it's essentially a piece of paper or a piece or a piece of like you know cell, cellophane or cellophane sheet with hole with the right markings on it the right holes in it you can go you can go look it up online it's very easy to reproduce basically um, but the reason why I'm talking about animation cells is because. The way they used to do 
anime and animation, it, it, they used to paint it all by hand. So if you see, um, say, Princess Mononoke, that is lots of hand painting. And sometimes the background is painted on um, just straight up paper or something because it you don't need... Once you once you hit the background, you don't need the transparency to see the background because that's that's the last that's the wall basically. <laughs> um, but at some point, computers got not necessarily computers because you could you could for a very long time you could get an image into a computer. With little to no hassle, well, not little to no hassle, but with relatively little hassle at a at a high enough resolution where it was of value to be like a useful production thing. However, up until the early aughts, it was vi two factors were true. First, the skill level with Photoshop was not there in the animation industry digitally paint stuff in a way that was, um, to, to bring in images and digitally paint them and render them in a way that was of a high enough standard to be produced and, you know, shown on TV and sold for money. The second thing is, is, if you've ever used Photoshop, and I'm not talking about, like, you've opened Photoshop and, like, pasted Nicki Minaj's head on, like, Ariana Grande's body or something. Um, I'm talking about, like, if you've ever professionally used Photoshop, if you've ever professionally photo edited, if you've ever used it for web design or something like that, you know that Photoshop is, can, or, or can be, a rickety bucket of fucking bolts. And I speak from experience here. I spent the better part of a decade, I spent a decade, for all intents and purposes, as a high-end graphic designer, art director, creative director type. I know that Photoshop is a rickety bucket of bolts, and I'm totally okay saying that, and I'm totally okay if, with Adobe hearing that, because when I was um, in that profession for for a huge period of time, on a weekly basis, I would scream into Twitter at an Adobe at the Adobe support Twitter um, account and be like, "Yo, Photoshop broken again. What do I do?" It it will not open, and they're like, "Oh, you need to you need to explode out Photoshop from the inside out and like replace this file, and you'll be fine." Like, okay, you dumbasses. So, Photoshop, once you start... Photoshop and, like, all that fun creative software, once you start using it professionally, uh, you need a level of just technical knowledge to make it stable and to make it dependable in case it breaks or in case 900 other things that it takes time to build up a talent pool in an industry to do that. And 
it also to and it also takes time for the people who interact with those people to know enough about what those people what that talent pool is doing to be able to a help if need be b understand when someone's not up to snuff or someone might need more help or any number of things and right around the early 2000s it when we hit that crucial point of oh this stuff is good enough now we can start like it's either we start or we don't and so they started and a great example of like an early digipaint show is um dot hack liminality which i've actually talked about on this podcast um but the kind of the kind of traits of early um of early digipaint shows and when i say digipaint i mean digital painting which means that the drawings are probably done in the actual raw drawings and this is if you've seen um shirbako this is the standard now is the drawings are this is the standard unless you're doing full-on cgi i should say um the drawings are done by hand the 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 draw the keyframes are done by hand on animation paper which is paper that has animation peg lines and um uh screen safety guidelines that are just like updated every time screens get a little bit wider but um so that's done by hand and then it's scanned into a computer um the, the hilariously the best most consistent like workflow demonstration of this in Shirobako is the bit is like in the very beginning when all the girls when when the donut when the Don Don Donuts Club is making their their like journey to the West animation, they show you all the steps in a lot of detail actually. And once it's in once once those drawings are in there, um I, as a crazy person, would probably go through and reline everything, re-ink everything, but if the if the line work is good enough and if the inking is if the line work isn't broken and it's sure enough and good enough, you can go through and you can start painting. And I, generally the way that painting works, or the way at least I do painting, is you lay down a base color first and then you go into that and then you go like another layer and then you go into like shadows, details, blending, all the way and you do that up and up and up and up and up. Usually the um the big call out um layer is at least for me is the eyes. So like usually I do and I do this literally literally every day. I draw like this every day. If you follow me on Instagram, which you totally should um, shameless, shameless self-shill right there, but you totally should. Um, I just finished Inktober, and I always post process video. I try to always post process videos with my drawing, so you can see, like, my brain space going through this fucking thing. Um, but, 
I do a pencil sketch and then I do the and I ink do the ink inking line work and then I do some iPad Procreate magic and I lay down all the base colors and I go in for shadows, color variations. Um, I do the eyes on their own layer because they're really intricate and like little fucking marbles and anime character heads. And then I go through and I do um, either one or two separate layers of highlights and lighting because um, sometimes three um, because the like light bounces and affects things in different ways and I want to make sure that everything looks the way I want it to and it should. Um, that is true now of animators, but when they were first getting started, the, there was some limitation to how the stuff was, to, to how much they were willing to do because they didn't... If you look at somebody who draws in an anime style, and even me, and I, I draw in a, I draw in like a weird combination anime, co cartoon, comic style. It, there's a lot of learning required to master a style of drawing, and when even even if you're drawing on an iPad and you switch drawing apps. You have to adjust how you're drawing to the medium you're drawing in, to the, or literally to the program space you're drawing in. So a lot of the colorists who were working with um, paints, gouaches, tempers, whatever, and were doing a lot of the hand mixing themselves, had to then go in and find the right mixes of things, the right all the right, like, um, had to find a way to get the, um, to get the program to produce what they wanted. And now we're, and, you know, a decade into it, we're now at a place where all of that stuff has developed and we're back at the place of, like, we can produce the best looking shit now. We can put, we, colorists and animators and animation studios can produce stuff that looks better than the stuff from the pre-DigiPaint era. And at the, and this happens with game consoles too. Um, oftentimes, the stuff you see at the beginning of a game console generation, this is really, actually really good because we're about to, backslide into another into a new fucking generation of consoles. Oftentimes the stuff that you'll find at, that you'll get at the beginning of a game console generation will look roughly similar, a little up to the stuff from the previous generation we just left. And that's because the artists and the programmers and all the people who make games haven't had the toolboxes for long enough to really knock it the fuck out of the park. And that is true of any kind of art medium, so including animation. So if you look at like 
shows like Da Hack Thine, Da Hack Liminality, or in that or in that vein of shows, you'll see a certain flat look because animators were getting their feet under them. <laughs> like the colorist, the coloring departments were just like, oh, we got all these cool computers, let's start poking stuff. But we also need to produce something so we can eat food. <laughs> and like I said earlier, it, they probably got all this, all the familiarity with this technology probably got to a point where it was either we do it and we commit to it or we don't do it at all because if you don't, the longer that something, the longer that you don't rip the band-aid off when it comes to, um, what's it called? When it comes to any kind of technological advancement in creativity, the harder it will be to rip that sucker off and make it really, and, and, and the longer it will take you to catch up to the curve. A perfect example from my own work, which once again, it I like, but it's not super important in the grand scheme of things, is I took forever to get an iPad Pro. I now have an iPad Pro, and I love it. It's my baby. It sleeps next to me. Um, literally, I keep it on my the second shelf down on my end table to charge it. And I, lots of times, the first thing I do when I get up is I draw for a while, I sit in bed and I draw. But the little iPad mini, which I actually am going to add as a reference screen to my already insane desk, um, had so much, A, still has so much stuff on it, B, had so many tweaks and alterations to procreate on it that I have to go, that I have to now go back in and like, you know, find my favorite brushes, see how all the new, see how all my old brushes work on a bigger, more, you know, comprehensive drawing, drawing in a bigger, more comprehensive drawing environment. See what, see how certain apps I used to use work now and how they don't. I figure all this shit out. So when... So, and that takes a while. I mean, I've had this iPad for, I want to say a month, and I'm still, like, loading brushes into it constantly. I'm loading palettes into it constantly. I'm, you know, adjusting brushes so, like, they're the right thickness at the right pressure points and all this other stuff. And when you start, when you start your art journey... That stuff doesn't super matter to you. And at, at a base level, it never really matters. Like, if you see somebody who can draw on a, on a tablet, or even with a, or even on a, um, screen, on uh, a screen display, like, um, like a, a pen display, like I have sitting in front of me, hooked up to my, um, recording setup, because this is also a creative station, um, <laughs> Uh, they can draw, they can draw on paper. It may take, but it may take them a little bit of time to not like, oh, because they're used to drawing digitally. And, um, oftentimes now, actually, the truth is that many animators 
they don't use paper. They use pen displays. They use the, like, biggest Cintiq afforded to them. Because that's, A, that skips the step of paper. B, it, it ultimately saves a lot of time for the animate time and money for the animation studio because um and once again I'm gonna make a lot of references to Shiro Bako here. Um Shiro Bako had this great scene where um the main character I forget the main character Shiro Bako's name goes with one of her uh, goes with her um stu- goes with her boss, the studio president to basically their storage facility, which is where the studio used to be housed, but now just they hold on to a storage facility. He says it as much. And she sees the piles of original cells that are just, like, filed away for um, okay keeping, not good keeping, um, for not safekeeping, but okay keeping. And they... Um, they, they are just sitting there. And what you are seeing is thousands of man-hours of work sitting there. And the other thing is, is um, as studios kind of, as, as they work, they produce all this stuff. Which has value, and one of the most heartbreaking parts of um, the Kyoani fire that happened over a year ago now, um, it is that it it destroyed a lot of the assets of their work, and in addition to losing people, like the director of Miss Kobayashi Dragon Maid is just gone from the earth and that saddens me immensely it could be that sections of the original Kobe, Miss Kobayashi Dragon Maid are gone from the earth and when you're working digitally if you have the proper precautions you can store that stuff so you can make sure that there is never an that there's never another still of, let's say, Dr. Stone, which was produced with a pretty digital-heavy mindset, still does that will exist in perpetuity. You may never get the, like, archivalist animated cell that is a real thing from that show, but you will get a level of preservation of assets that is kind of unparalleled and that's really important and if if you do it the way they do it in um Shirobako in Shirobako's studio you get kind of the best of both worlds you get those original artist drawings you get as like a archivalist like, art piece that can be, like, fra- sold for thousands of dollars at some point and framed and put on somebody's wall. But you also get um, the preservation of assets in the digital form because and this is a big problem with um, American cartoons especially, is lots of, and even anime, it's, um, it's less of a problem with anime now because of otaku culture, 
But uh, and I, I'll circle back around to why this is important to DigiPaint in a second. I, if you haven't already figured it out, animation studios because they are producing they they are producing in many cases pop culture. They're producing kids kids shows and you know they're producing Saturday morning cartoons. They're producing. The like most some of the most ephemeral forms of entertainment and pop culture. They, they don't. For a long time, there was not this tendency to preserve that stuff. Um, if you've ever seen Millennium Actress, they do a great job of talking about like, oh, some of her old films are just like sitting in film canisters during an earthquake and they don't exist anymore in a full way because uh, Thunderblock fell on them and crushed half the reel. That is true for a lot of things. I just finished watching the whole run of um, DC's Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, the like awesome mid-aughts Justice League adaptation they did. And that thing is fucked up because they probably don't have a proper master for it. So what they did is they went and they went to the original broadcast stations, which archive all of this shit. Because the reason that you archive programming as a broadcast TV station is once it goes into syndication or you buy the rights and you put it in syndication, you can make money off it. And they just, they bought the broadcast, what's called commonly the broadcast master, which is the literal order that everything, the literal order and state that everything was broadcast in. So if you want a great example of how this could change a show, imagine if, for whatever reason, Card Capture Chakra in its original form was unrecoverable. <laughs> And the only version of it we had, and this would require it to have aired in its entirety, which is a different thing, um, because it did not. The only version of Card Capture Chakra you had was the Kids WB, like 2001, late 90s, Card Captures nightmare thing, which I have more affection for than I should, honestly. And that was the only option that um, Kodansha had. So they had to buy it and redub it. They had to get it and redub it. That we would live in a really weird, different world for that in that show's fandom of just like, oh fuck! Now we have to deal with this shit. And that's why that's probably and this is where I'm gonna end it. But that's a huge part of the reason why DigiPaint, regardless of its flaws in the early goings. Once again, look at dot hack sign liminality. It is a very flat, very not low budget looking show, but very um very restrained stylistic wise looking show. Um That's why it that's why they made that that's probably a huge part of the reason why they made that jump is because these animators are looking down the road of like if this trajectory and especially the studios are looking down the road and seeing if this trajectory of the popularity of anime takes 
then we should start being able to preserve this stuff. And you eventually get to a point where um, one of the big ways you could support KyoAni during the um, during the um, aftermath of their fi- of their um, of that tragedy is the is you could go to their site and they, there were a bunch of people online giving um, instructions on how to do this. And you could buy digital stills from them. And the reason why you can do that now is because those stills were ultimately produced digitally, most likely. They weren't produced by hand and scanned in later. But because they have that option of having those digital stills, that becomes a revenue source for them. And it becomes less about even archivalization as another as another thing you can offer to fans of your properties. And I I can imagine it both ways. I can imagine someone thinking seeing that and thinking, oh, this is really smart, we should do this. I can also imagine someone thinking, oh, well this is a good idea. Would we should do it and we'll figure out and we'll figure out the justification later because this is the right move. And not having the like um marketing eye to be like, oh, we could offer just these high-end stills to, you know, fans for, like, a couple bucks a pop. And so, you go look at those DigiPaint shows, and they just, they look kind of ugly. They, the early DigiPaint era shows look kind of just ugly. Um, Probably the most I a salty one that I've ever seen. I, I just people love this show, but I can't get through it because I'm just like that's not that's not how you Photoshop properly. Um, is the um, Gankuso adaptation that um, the costume designs were done by Anna Sui, and the reason why I hate that thing, I don't necessarily hate the show. I've never seen the show, but uh, I've never seen the show in its entirety. Every time I've attempted to watch it, I get a little seasick because that show does the that show does the Photoshop thing that you should not do. That a lot of times you can see not in motion, but oftentimes you see when you see in motion, it really affects you. And that is when you use patterns in Photoshop. What you should be doing is every single cell uh, of an animation repasting the pattern and re-manipulating it so it looks like it's flowing with the character. If you don't, what ends up happening is you have this static pattern that looks like it's it's staying still and everything else, everything else is moving, and it looks like you are. It looks like characters aren't wearing clothes such. So much as they're wearing closed shaped cutouts and the pattern is behind and you're getting like a weird parallax effect. And I, I just, I know that is not a thing that is, I know that it's not a thing that's technically impossible. It's just a thing that's technically difficult. And I'm just like, I can't, I can't, you need to make the jump for me, bud. And, um, now granted, there are times when they make that work and they, like, jive it with the aesthetic. 
Like if you go look at um, Paradise Kiss, that has some of that stuff. But they take care to like make it fit in. And that show has such a fashion bend that it feels it feels different there than it feels in a show where they brought in a fashion designer to do all the costumes. And it just, it, when I look at it at least, I'm like, oh, that seems, that seems like a compromise. And I, so yeah, I just wanted to like talk about the DigiPain era since it's an, it's an odd, weird, sometimes ugly era of anime that I think led to the kind of beautiful, of like drop dead beautiful things that we can, that are done in anime now. Like, um, once again, this show seems, this show is real fucking boring, even if it is a show about a like fully capable, awesome, disabled character. Um, we don't get the look and feel of Violet Evergarden without going through the like trials and tribulations of producing a lot of things that look like once again dot hack liminality. <laughs> and I just I just wanted to um talk about it because it popped in my head. I'm like, that's a really good idea. And on that note, if you like this show, you can subscribe and whatever you're using to listen to me right now. Um the show comes out every Thursday and Sunday, and every once in a while I do like a bonus thing I call Manga Minute, and that is literally just me talking about manga that I've read and I think is interesting for a full minute. Um, but until Thursday, I have been Alex, you've been listening to Lunchbox Radio, and I'll talk to you then.